Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 42. We're going to be looking at uh, Jeremiah 42 through 44 today, uh, but not reading the whole sections. Uh, I invite you to turn with me first uh, to chapter 42. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then the first three verses of chapter 43. I'll just give a minute for people to, to get there. Beloved saints, uh, this, this is God's word to us this morning. Jeremiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan the son of Kareah, and Je Jezaniah the son of Hasha Hashiah, and the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the things we should do. Jeremiah, the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request, and whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us. If we do not, sorry, then they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us. If we do not act according to all the word which, with which the Lord your God sends to us, whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. And now if you will just skip with me to the beginning of chapter 43 verses 1 through 3. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words of the Lord their God with which the Lord their God had sent to them, Azariah the son of Hashiah and Jehanan the son of Korea and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has sent you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. Oh, let's pray. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you. We long to see you revealed within your scriptures. Open to us the beauty of your word. Open our eyes and our hearts to behold the King of glory and give us faith to receive all that we see. Amen. Well, I was thinking about ventriloquism this week, and I know that ventriloquism is a dying art, uh, but most of us should know what it is. Uh, it's when you have a puppet, uh, uh, which is called in the business a dummy, a ventriloquist dummy, and without moving your mouth, your lips, your teeth, you, you make it sound as if the dummy, the puppet, is talking. And there's an appeal to ventriloquism. When you're a child, the appeal is the mechanics of it, the ability to throw your voice, to, to make it look like something or someone else is talking when in fact it's you who's doing it. But if, but if you've watched ventriloquists, you learn very quickly that the real appeal of this uh, art 
is that you get to say things that you would not ordinarily say and you get to blame it on the dummy, on the puppet. Because the dummies, the puppets, if you've watched them, are always saying something shocking, something rude, something unfiltered, and the artists will always look shocked and embarrassed. Uh, they'll rebuke the dummy, say, stop that, and they'll apologize to the audience. And it's easy to get caught up in the moment to believe the stagecraft and actually think that the two are really arguing. But that's all it is. It's stagecraft. It's smoke. It's mirrors. Uh, everything that dummy says comes from the heart and the mind of the ventriloquist. And that's the appeal. That is the appeal of ventriloquism. It provides you an opportunity to say things you want to say, but aren't allowed to say in polite society. And I think we all get the appeal. There are things we want to say, things we wish would be said, but we don't want to be the ones to say them. We want someone else to say it so that we can look over and agree or appeal to them. It wasn't me, but hey, when the truth is spoken, we want someone else to say it. And this isn't just the appeal of ventriloquism. This is the appeal of all false religions, of all false gods, and all false versions of the true God. False gods are really no different than a ventriloquist dummy. False gods can't speak unless we first put words into their mouths. And then people turn around and they say, well, the gods have spoken. I, we've got to follow and do what they've said. And so last week, as we looked at Jeremiah 37 and 38, we looked at what it means to be reshaped into God's image, to love the truth, to to be compassionate and suffer along others and to suppress and submit, uh, subdue that desire to do the wrong thing in order to do what is right, regardless of the consequences. What it means to be reshaped into God's image. As we turn to chapters 42 and through 44, we're going to see what happens when we do the reverse, when we try to remake God in our own image. When we try to refashion God or a false God to be more like us. And as we're going to see, it does not go well. Our problem is that we want to control God, but he will not be controlled. And so as we look at our passage this morning, my, my single point, my main point that I want to bring out is this. The true God, because he is the creation of no man, cannot be controlled. And he will always surprise you. Uh, to do that, to see this, we want to see three things. First, we want to look at the request for help that the Jews made as they prepared to escape to Egypt, as well as the sub subsequent rejection uh, to the counsel God gives. Then we want to see what exactly it was that God told them and wrestle with how God works. And then finally, we want to address the appeal of false gods and the true God's refusal to be controlled. So those are the three things we, we want to look at as we study um, Jeremiah 42 and 43 and 44 uh, this morning. Now, the setting of our passage is that the army of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is laying siege to Jerusalem. It's only a matter of time until he and his army will overrun the city and either kill or enslave everyone who remains. Most of the Jews have already been captured or, or killed. And only a, a small remnant, only a few remain. 
And those who remain have decided to flee to Egypt and to seek refuge there. Egypt is Israel's historic rival. Uh, Egypt is her nemesis. Uh, it's the one place we don't expect the Israelites to go uh, at this time. In fact, uh, you know, years before the Egyptians had enslaved the Jews, when God brought his people out of Egypt, he commanded them that they were never to return to Egypt again. But here they are, they're on their way back to Egypt where God has told them not to go. And someone had the idea of pausing and asking Jeremiah what the Lord thinks of their plan. And that sounds good. Up until this point, uh, the people have not been particularly receptive to uh, Jeremiah's uh, prophecy, his interaction, his counsel, his, his bringing of God's word. And they have beat him, they have mocked him, and they have imprisoned him up until this point. Now, finally, finally, they're asking him what they should do. They, they say they want to listen. They're asking for help. And, and so Jeremiah Rather than simply saying, you could have listened to me long before, he says, no, I will go. I will inquire and I will speak to you every word that God tells me. And the hope, the expectation is that if they ask the Lord's guidance, if they ask, they will also follow the Lord's guidance. Because isn't that the point? Isn't that why we seek counsel? But it's not what happened. Skipping ahead a bit for now, we find the response to, to what Jeremiah says at the beginning of chapter 43. They accuse Jeremiah of lying. They say that he was simply parroting the words of Baruch, and he's not delivering the word of God. And so we have to ask, what is it that convinced them that Jeremiah was lying, that his message was not actually uh, originating, coming from the Lord? And it was simply that Jeremiah said, you're going the wrong way. Don't go to Egypt. They asked God, should we go to Egypt? And there's only two possible answers, yes or no. And you'd think it would, it would be simple. You'd think this, this is what they're looking for, a yes or a no. You'd think that they would have expected God to say no based upon everything he said since the time of Moses you will never return to Egypt. But no, they were looking for only one response, affirmation of what they had already determined to do. The only answer they were willing to hear was, you're doing great, keep going. They were unwilling to listen to anything that challenged their plan, their vision. So what was it exactly that, that that God said that they took to be so offensive. Let's, let's read together uh, Jeremiah 42, verses 7 through 17. Chapter 42, verses 7 through 17. At the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and then he summoned Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces who were there with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me, to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord. 
for I am with you to save you and deliver you from, the, from his hand. I will grant you mercy, that he may have mercy on you, and let you remain in your own land. But if you say, we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt, where we shall not see war, or hear the sound of the trumpet, or be hungry for bread, and we will dwell there, then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to Egypt, to enter Egypt, and to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. And all the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And they shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. It wasn't just that God said, don't go to Egypt, that bothered them. It was that he said, stay in Jerusalem. He doesn't reject Egypt as a place of escape and then offer them an alternative. God told them not to try to escape at all, not to try to flee the coming calamity, but to trust him in the midst of it. They were small in number. The strongest army of the world is at their door. And God says, stay put. Don't go anywhere. Wait on me. Trust in me. Really what he's saying is, don't place your hope in finding a safe place. Place your hope in me. Trust me to take care of you. Believe that I am greater than any earthly army. Put your confidence in me and not your circumstances. He told them that if they stayed put, they would survive. He would take this little remnant through the fires and he'd bring them safely through onto the other side. Their enemies would not have the final word. He would resurrect and restore them as, as a people if they would simply trust him. It was what they needed to hear, but it was not what they wanted to hear. But it should not have been surprising. This is how God works. It's always been how he works. God never avoids the fire. He always goes through it. That's what he told his people in Isaiah. You remember Isaiah 43? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And, though the and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. Or Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God has never let his people down the easy path. That's not his way. His path is always through trials. He always moves things forward through death and resurrection. His promise is never that we will avoid trials, but that he will be with us 
in the midst of trials. And the temptation will always be to run and to seek a safe place rather than to trust God in the midst of adversity to deliver us. But here's the problem. You can't find God in the safe places of this world because he's always found in the midst of trials. When God came into this world and became man, he made it clear that his strategy would not be to run from danger. When facing death, you remember what Jesus said? He said, and now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but it is for this purpose that I have come. Or on the very night of his betrayal, you remember his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any way, let this cut pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. His posture in the face of overwhelming adversity was always perseverance, surrender, and confidence. That is who God is. It's who he has always been. His call for his people to reflect that should never be a surprise to us. And as has always been the case, the, the only solution that can give any hope is his solution. The Bible tells us there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads only to death. But we often think that we can outsmart God. We, we think we're smarter than he is. We think we, we know something that he doesn't. We think that our way will work and his won't. To the Israelites, Egypt looked like the wise choice, the safe place, the, the, where they should go. And yet three times, three times God warned them not to go. Three times he told them it would end badly. Three times he pled with them to listen to his word. And each time they refused. There was a way that seemed right to them. But God says it was the way of death. They did not save their lives. They lost them. And so we have to ask, what is it? What was so attractive about Egypt? What appealed to them? What drew them there? What pulled them there that made them want to trust their own instincts over the word of God? And the answer is simple. Egypt and the gods of Egypt offered Israel exactly what they wanted, exactly what they expected. They offered a well-ordered, predictable, and non-threatening religion. They, like all the other gods of the surrounding nations, the gods of Egypt promised that if you do the right rituals, offer the right sacrifices, say the right things, they will guard and they will protect you and you won't have any problems. And if gods are, are predictable, if you know what they're going to do, they can be controlled. And that's really what they wanted. They, that's what they were pursuing, a religion that they could control. Really, that's what's going on when they ask God if they're doing the right thing. They weren't really asking God to render a judgment on their plan. They were giving him one last chance to prove himself. He was the one being judged. They had no intention of surrender, of yielding 
to his plan. They were offering him an opportunity to yield to theirs. And when he said, don't run, stay in the chaos, it was unacceptable, it was unthinkable, and they rejected it outright. In their minds, the job of a God is not to challenge their thinking, but to affirm it. And for most gods, or for most people, gods are, are, are no different than a ventriloquist dummy. Their job is to say things that you want said, but would look bad saying yourself. We want someone to say those things so that we can appeal to them and agree with them. We don't want to change course. We just want to say, the gods have spoken. I have to do it. And so false gods are always safe. They never surprise us. So long as you follow the list of rituals, you're safe. But they are just the creations of man. They can no more offer hope than a wooden puppet. The promises of false gods are made of sawdust because at the end of the day, their worshipers are the ones who are pulling the strings. And we Christians are, are not exempt. We have all the same temptations. We have all the same problems. We might not worship false gods outright, but we quickly and easily adopt false versions of the true God. It's so easy to think that our God is just like all the other gods, that so long as we do the right thing, so long as, as we say the right things, as long as we go to church, we have our quiet time, as long as we go to confession or have an accountability partner, as long as we put our offering in the basket, then everything will be okay. We, dis, we depersonalize God into a list of rules. We think he's kind of like a CEO of a big company. We never see him except from a distance at big events. We certainly don't have a personal relationship with him. And so long as we do our job, turn in our reports on time, we have job security and a nice pension will be waiting for us at the end. We turn God into a bureaucrat who can be placated and controlled. Or we reduce him down to our theology. We read big theological books. We recite catechisms. We know how he works. And we think that if we know how he works, we can predict him and what he will do. And if we can predict what he will do, we can control him. And we forget that God is personal, that he knows us. He knows our hearts. He can't be manipulated. He can't be controlled. He knows what we're trying better than we do. Or we go to the other extreme. Rather than trying to make God some distant bureaucrat or that can be controlled, we make him so personal, so close, that we think of him as a bro, a bud, or a BFF. And what friend would ever tell you to stay put in the midst of chaos? What friend would want you to be happy? What friend wouldn't want you to be happy? What friend wouldn't want you to stay safe and to be fulfilled? We believe that true friends listen and ultimately compromise, and we think God's the same. He's going to listen to us. He's going to hear our side, and, and we'll, we'll find a compromise somewhere in the middle. We convince ourselves that God is no different than any of our other friends. He's a friend, but he is different. He is God. You see, we crave equality with God or total anonymity. But God will neither ever be your equal, nor will he ever be a distant bureaucrat. 
What if God is predictably unpredictable? The true God, if he truly is God, is the creation of no man, and he cannot be controlled by any man. Just think of the sorts of things the Bible says. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Or whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Or whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. God teaches us things like freedom is found in surrender, or life is purchased through death. God says things like greatness is found in meekness. And we have to ask, who would ever create a God like that? He's unpredictable. He can't be controlled. He won't say what we want him to say. Beloved, if you're never surprised by God, you're probably following, following a false God, or at best, a false version of the true God. The true God will always surprise you. Because we want a safe and a harmless road forward. We want heaven without the cross. But no such thing exists in this world. Only false gods who are the fiction of our own desires will, would make such promises. False gods always say what we expect because they're nothing more than, than the dummies in the hands of ventriloquists who, who are saying what we want to be said. False gods are, are, are like the sycophants that egotists surround themselves with. The sycophant will always tell you what you want to hear. A true friend will tell you what you need to hear. A slave to pride will surround himself with people who will always just echo back what he wants to hear. And then when everything goes sideways and everything goes wrong, he wonders how he lost everything. A truly wise person will surround himself with true counselors who will challenge and yes, even contradict him. God is a true friend who will take us where we need to go, even if it's not where we want to go. And sometimes he will say, stay, when every fiber of your being says run. Because he requires that we learn to take comfort in him and not our circumstances. Maybe you're familiar with uh, that famous quote by Stonewall Jackson. He says, my religion, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to always be ready, no matter when it may overtake me. In that statement is the substance of what we struggle to accept. If we truly understand who God is, we'll stop looking for comfort, for hope, for certainty in our circumstances because we will accept that God is greater than those circumstances. And this doesn't mean that the road will be easy. It just means that God will not abandon us. It requires that we accept that the way to heaven is always the path of the cross, that the only way to ultimate peace and rest is following God through the chaos, through the fires. Because if you can control God, so can others. And anyone stronger or smarter than you will be able to come along 
and take control of him. And we would be at the mercy and the whim of whoever figures out how to pull God's strings the best. You don't want a God who can be controlled any more than you want to place your hope for eternity in the hands of a wooden puppet. This morning, we might not be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, but is it any wonder why every week God leads us there? Every time we gather for worship, what does he call us to celebrate? It's his death. That he did not flee, he did not escape to comfort, that he stayed right where he was in danger. That he, he stayed in the face of chaos, upheaval, and certain death. Who would talk like that? Who would invent a God like that? Who would say, in this you know that you can trust me. I died. Certainly no God we would ever create. But our God surprises us. Death was a surprise. His apostles didn't see it coming. And yet death wasn't the last surprise. He held out one more surprise for the third day. He rose again, and he conquered death. And he assures us that even if we should die, that we will live forever with him. He might be willing to submit to death, but he won't be controlled by it. Praise God that he's no ventriloquist dummy. Praise God that he will not be controlled. And so we can place our hope and our confidence in him and trust his word and follow him wherever it leads, knowing that he will not leave us and he will never forsake us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are no more a creation than you are the invention of man. We thank you that you cannot be controlled, that you will not simply tell us what we want to hear. We thank you that you are neither a distant bureaucrat nor a simple friend who is eager to please and unwilling to make us uncomfortable. Because if we can control you, so can our enemies. But if we can't control you, neither can our enemies. Even death itself must surrender to your commands. Because you are the creation of no man, we have hope, we have confidence, and we have life. We thank you that we could meet today, even though we were not physically together, that we could be together and hear your word and spend time together. For in doing so, you remind us that we are one, not because we occupy the same space, but because we are occupied by the same God. For we are your house, we are your temple, we are your body, and we praise you. And so even as we go this morning, we ask that you would bless us and that you would keep us. That you would make your face to shine upon us and that you would be gracious to us. We pray that you would lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen.